Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Apennetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, my fellow prisoners, who were of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, Note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such, do not serve our Lord, Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the peace, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so we're in this section of greetings, commendations, not condemnations. We're in the section of greetings, commendations, and also receivings. And so we're thinking about the relationship there. And so notice how priestly this section is. Right? Paul is very concerned here for relationship. And he's very concerned about the encouraging of relationship. And so you think about this. Priests are, are about holiness, right? Holiness is about the goal, being focused on the goal. And it's also about avoiding distraction that causes you to not focus on the goal. So holiness is going to have hedging. You're going to keep stuff out, right? So if you go, I'm supposed to do this, that means I'm not supposed to do this other stuff, right? The we are finite creatures. We cannot do everything at once. So we do something and we exclude other actions by that. And so holiness is partly about that. So the idea of, of the 
keeping of the garden that was given to Adam, a part of that was guarding the garden and preventing, I don't know, serpents from coming in and ruining the whole thing. Uh, you think about the Song of Solomon, and it talks about how there should be a, that the, the young lady should be a closed door rather than open. Right? So they did, she's supposed to keep out men who are not fitting in that garden. Be chaste. There is this idea of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the church. And it has walls and gates and gatekeepers. And the unclean things are kept out. The temple was to not have the unclean come into it. So you have this idea of keeping things out so that there can be a focus on what is good. And with relationship, it is so easy to think that the church does not have all of the members that you wished it had and that those outside are more fun. And so the idea of caring about relationship in the church is intensely important. If we don't have good relationship, we're not going to do anything useful together. Underline, bold, italic. I've made it orange. If we don't care about each other, if we don't spend time with each other, we're not going to do anything useful together. So Paul is really encouraging relationship at a distance here. And he lays it on pretty thick for about a chapter. Now what would your response be if you got a letter like that? Could you pass along about 35 messages for me? Say hi, and hi, and hi, and hi, hi. But that's, that's what this letter is. You have this big chunk of that. Holy Spirit-inspired, preserved by the providence of God. Hi. It's valuable. And so we have, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Hi. Smiley face. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And it's not just hi, but they say hi to so-and-so for me. They are really great at such and such. Or they did this thing with me. Right? Just There's this reminder of the history. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. That's an interrupter. Okay? He's got a message. He's going to greet Priscilla and Aquila. And then verse 5 is, likewise, greet the churches in their house. Okay? But we just have a series of interruptions. Right? He's like, hey, say hi. Oh, by the way, they work with me. You know, in Christ. Also, they risk their lives for me. Oh, also, I give thanks to them. Also, so do all of the Gentiles. All the Gentiles give thanks to them. Where was I? Oh, that's right. Greet the church in their house. That's, that's what's going on here. That's the relational care. That's the slathering on of honor. Do you, do you see that as slathering on the honor. This is not a little bit of honor scraped on the toast where you can barely get the butter to the edges. This is, there's too much butter on here. It's going to be gross when you eat it. Like, honestly, there needs to be less butter. We just take some of the butter off. But that's how we feel about it. This kind of level of honoring, or there's an outdoing of honoring each other. Right? Paul is intentionally giving honoring speech to build relationship. And he's acknowledging. And guess what? He's their superior. And so he's the one in authority. He's the apostle. And he's the one who's going out of his way to honor them. To greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. This is to the home church of Priscilla and Aquila. This is not an introduction. This is not, I commend to you Priscilla and Aquila. Here are some basic things you need to know about them. This is, please greet Priscilla and Aquila, whom you know better than I, because you spend more time with them. You've heard this story before. You know this story. You all know the story. But let me just remind you. 
one of the things that it's the job of old people and people in authority to do is to tell the same story over and over and over again. And when you do that, it's important that you pick the stories to tell over and over again really well. That you have intentionality about it. Because what you repeat over and over again becomes a cultural artifact and it becomes a part of the building up of the story of the institution of your household and your church and your local community and it becomes a part of the reputation that you have and so you pick the stories to repeat. And what Paul has chosen to do is he's chosen, hey, you know that story that's recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 18? Here's a brief reminder I am greeting Priscilla and Aquila. They work in Christ with me. They risk their necks for me. I give thanks for them, and so do all the Gentiles. And so, why? There's a reminder to go back. There's an awareness of the story. And here's some key highlights that make it known that I, in particular, as the Apostle Paul, am grateful for them. And here are things that they've done. So this slathering on of honor... Now, notice not everybody gets the same honor. This is not a communism of honor. Right? You ever had that? You ever, like, complimented somebody and been in somebody else's present and you felt bad that you didn't compliment both people? So you're like, and also you. That tendency, that temptation, when we look for an excuse to compliment somebody else and make it equal detracts from the honor of the one who has the particular fittingness to that honor. So we have to overcome that, and we have to be willing to do that. So Paul has written to be preserved for all time an extensive honoring of Priscilla and Aquila above the list of the other people. And a lot of times we come to these lists of names and we think these are the boring parts that we need to skip over. The lists of names are purposeful and they kind of serve as flashback reminders. Okay? So you're watching a movie, you're going through something, you get to a key scene, and the director was worried that you might forget something that was really important. So there's a flashback to remind you, hey, remember this? This happened earlier in the movie. The lists of names serve that purpose a lot of the time in the Bible. Flashback, remember this. And so when we don't know a name, our first reaction needs to be to go to some place where there's a computer that has some program or website where we can search for that name and see where is it in the Bible. And so you're going to say, where are Priscilla and Aquila? Where are they? You do a quick search for them. You're going to look for other people's names. You look for those names. You say, is there something here? Are these the same people? What's going on there? And that helps you to get meaning for them. And for the rest of your life, as you read the Bible and you see that name, it will be a flashback for you. There's an interesting way that as you pile up the Word of God in your heart, it makes it so that as you read the Word of God, from then on, each time you read, you get more information. It increases the speed of the information coming into your heart. And the connections make them more memorable. So the rate of retention goes up. The initial investment is hard. The initial investment feels less rewarding. But the more you do it, the faster the rates of return. There is a compounding interest. So greet Priscilla and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, read the church that is in their house. So here we are. We're at Priscilla and Aquila, and something weird happens. The wife gets listed first. You have in the book of Acts kind of a switching back and forth. But the introduction has the wife listed first, then it goes to the husband listed first, and then it goes on. That would be very noticeable in the first century. So there's something there. And typically, there are two things that 
people who are commentators will try to suggest about why. I think they're both true. Okay. One, there's an indication of a particular activity that Priscilla's involved in the stuff that's being talked about. Two, there is a meaning to their names, and the order being switched helps to communicate that meaning. So what I want to do is totally disregard the order on my handout because I'm good at teaching like that. I'm going to go to page two. So page two, point three, Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. The word Priscilla is, um, you know, in Spanish you can have uh, ito added on as a diminutive or ita. Okay, the illa is a diminutive. It's a, it's like ita. Okay, so the name Priscilla, you, you, if you search the Bible, you'll find Priscilla called Prisca. And when you find her named Prisca, okay, that's that's probably her her given name. And Priscilla is a affectionate name. It is probably the name given to her affectionately by her husband. Because she's still known as it as a married woman. As perhaps an older married woman, but or a middle aged married woman, but almost certainly not less than that. So Having this name that sounds almost like a little girl's name, okay, little whatever, right, is something that is an affectionate term. So Priscilla is the diminutive form of Prisca. Prisca in Latin means ancient, and I, I don't think this is coming from Latin. So, uh, but, but Aquila in Latin means eagle or herd, okay? So some people will try to say the reason this is listed out is because they're like ancient eagles. And that means that they're honorable and powerful. Okay, the bottom line actually is about right. But they're Jews. They're Jews. They got kicked out of Rome because they were Jews. And guess what? Priscilla and Aquila also have a Hebrew origin. So, the Hebrew origin of Prisca would be a word that means honorable. Now, honorable, and then when you make it into the diminutive, it's sort of like the little honored one. So, the idea her husband thinks of her as this Feminine, small creature, who is honorable. This little vessel of honor. And then, the name Aquila, Latin eagle. But the Hebrew, the Hebrew origin is really light and is used to either mean something negative or positive. The negative one is light and therefore frivolous. Okay, but, then, but the positive side is light and therefore fast, swift. Decisive. And one of the things that we see with Priscilla and Aquila is they seem to make decisions quickly that are right. They make the right call and they do it fast and they do it over and over again. And as a result, Paul honors them above any other saint in this letter. Okay, so I think the swift decision making, you have Priscilla and Aquila. The idea of the list there, the idea of the little, honorable, and fast. This idea of being swift to do what needs to be done. And so there's a meaning with the name, and there's also the fact that the wife works together as a yoke mate with the husband. And we see that in lots of senses. So, now I'm going to go back up. That's a little bit of a preview of what we expect to see happening. So let's go back to the, the, the first page. Remember, we're, we're, we just moved out of talking about Phoebe as a servant of the church. And I talked to you last time about the categories of household stations of women. Women are typically in the Bible categorized as either younger women or older women. And the younger women are going to be virgins in the house of their father. 
They're going to be young married women, or they might be young widows or divorcees without children, in which case there's often a returning to the father's house, or there's a young widow um, who's, or divorce with children. And the instruction that we receive from them is to get married to a godly man. If that's not immediately available, seek to have sufficient economic means. If that's not immediately available, to get support from a godly patriarch, to seek to bless that estate and household. And if that's not available, then there's getting support from the church. And Paul encourages getting married. With older widows, we have, older women, we have, they have a duty in Titus 2 to fulfill their duties in their station and to also teach the younger women. And we listed out all those things they're supposed to teach. They have either a status as married or divorced or widowed or unmarried. And if they're in the older woman category, they're implicitly not going to have younger children. And so we see Prisca or Priscilla. She is likely an older married woman or at least a middle-aged married woman. So that's the role we're looking at there. Now, I'm repeating these categories because all of our feminist sensibilities have made sure that we try to not think about this as much as we can possibly manage. And my goal is to remove that and to habituate you to categorize people in these things because their fifth commandment duties of relationship to other people are largely determined by that. And how you counsel people is largely determined by their station in life. And the biblical stations are ones we need to have as categories that are ingrained upon our minds. And a part of the effort of feminism has been to erase the household order. And so we need to not just complain about feminism and not just be anti-feminist. We need to care about biblical patriarchy and the order of the oikos or bet, the household. Oikos is the Greek term and bet is the Hebrew term. The household order is something we need to care about. We need to care about. So this Prisca is fulfilling the married woman's role, especially a middle to older aged woman, a woman in a venerable position, an honored position, and her name fits well with that. Now, how about the man? Men, here are the stations you have in a household. You're either a married master or a widowed master, or an unmarried son in your father's house, or you might be a servant. You could also be master by being released from a house or by having your parents die and you becoming master of the estate without being married. So there's a releasing from the house or a, a passing away of the parents, either of those things. But the idea that you're generally in one of these roles. If you've been released then you are a master of the house. If you have left to get married, you're a master of the house. Now, when we think about those roles, Aquila is married and master of the house. So, Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife team. Go to point four. Priscilla fills the role of supporting her husband as patriarch and working as his glory, his helper in the business, and as hostess in hospitality. We see all three of those on display with Priscilla. She is a glory to her husband in that she is well-renowned for her honorable work, so much so that in some of the cases she is mentioned first, and that's not in a taking a usurping of the husband's place, but it's a she as famous for her piety brings honor to them. And her name as a diminutive form recognizes that she is the beloved of her husband. And so even her name when she's called Priscilla is a reminder of the love and care of her husband. Priscilla fills the role of supporting her husband as patriarch and working as his glory, as his helper in the business. We are told that they are in the business of tent making, which they use for a networking opportunity to work with Paul. 
They do business with Paul. They either hire Paul or they buy on a contract basis from Paul, tents that he's making. So he either becomes a servant of theirs or he becomes a peacemaker seller. Or he makes pieces and in the piecework gets paid. You know who the principal purchaser of tents would be, by the way, at this time? The legions. They're defense contractors. Mm-hmm. Now, she also works as hostess in hospitality. She works as hostess in hospitality. Hospitality towards Paul and hospitality towards Apollos. And that hospitality makes her famous. Women, are you worried that raising children and being hospitable is going to make it so that your work does not matter? Priscilla is famous because of her hospitality. She gets named first because she served her husband so well. So the duo together, honorable swiftness, that is who they are. She exemplifies being the queen of her husband, husband, supporting his message, honor, and work. Why do I say message? Because they worked together to disciple Apollos. You know where they probably learned the stuff they told Apollos? Paul. So in being hospitable to Paul and working with Paul, they're learning from Paul, and then they're able to pass along Paul's teaching, which is Christ's teaching, to Apollos. And Priscilla was a part of that. She was a part of that discussion in the hospitality, teaching a public teacher. Now, we dealt with Phoebe last time, and Phoebe said that she is a servant of the church in Sincrea. And so, there's a connection between Aquila and Priscilla and Phoebe. And so, we're going to look at Acts 18. But Sincrea is a port near Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla meet Paul in Corinth. And so, there's this... When they work together with him, there's a time where they're in Corinth. And so we have that get mentioned. So we'll look at that. The other thing, I have the mentions for you of where Priscilla and Aquila come up. Acts 18 is the major place. There's the greeting here in Romans 16. There's a mention again in 2 Timothy 4. And also there's a mention in 1 Corinthians 16, 19. So you have all those mentions of them. So they're significant. They're brought up multiple times. I'd encourage you to go read those texts. So, we've looked at the fact that they're called fellow workers. That they Then there's this thing where Paul says, they risked their own necks for my life. So we're going to read about that. Paul, as he is wont to do, manages to get an entire city mad at him while he's in their house. And they didn't say, move along please. Paul gives thanks to them for his care to him, but so do all the churches of the nations or the Gentiles. Why? Why would all of the churches of the Gentiles, like Puritan Reformed Church, largely Gentile, I know some of you are Hebrews. Some of us are Gentiles. Why would those churches, why would those churches give thanks to Priscilla and Aquila? Because as we'll read in Acts 18, their teaching of Apollos helps Apollos to understand the new covenant administration, to understand that Christ is the Messiah, and that there's therefore a breaking down of the wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so there's this work, this important pioneering work to help to make it so that the Gentile churches are able to function better and have the blessing of mature believers who are the Jewish believers who are able to participate and have interaction across those lines more effectively. He starts to beat down the opposers of that, the Judaizers and the Jews that rejected Christ as Messiah. He argues with them, so we see that. So there's reason to give thanks. So let's read Acts 18. Okay, So I've got it here on your handout. 
After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila. Okay, so notice they're Hebrews, right? Aquila's brought up first. He's, he's the one who, who meets Paul. He met a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So, what happened here, we have the, the Emperor Claudius. The Emperor Claudius ruled between AD 41 and AD 54. So that's it has to happen here. We have a more narrow range of dates for when the kicking out of the Jews occurred. I've researched it. I have conflicting numbers on it, and I'm not settled enough on it to give you publicly what the date is on that. So I think I did that before and explained when it was when I went to Acts, but I forgot everything I studied, so I couldn't remember what I concluded. So uh, maybe I could have re-listened to that, but I didn't. So there's some time in the reign of Claudius. They're kicked out of Rome. They're of the same trade, the tent makers. They're highly skilled, high-paid manufacturing jobs. Tent makers... There's a lot of learning that has to go into it. If you make them wrong, they leak. If you make it wrong, the materials start to rot from wetness. There's all sorts of things you have to do well. You have to handle things like preservatives and dyes. And, and so if you do that wrong, you can die. And so there's a number of things that you learn in that process. And it's got detail work. And the materials are expensive. And if you punch the wrong hole in the wrong place, you can ruin an expensive piece of material that's relatively large. So it is a... High skill, high pay, manufacturing job. So they either hired or hosted Paul. And then we get to verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so, so get this. He's going to the synagogue and he, hasn't, he doesn't just walk in and say, by the way, Yeshua is the Messiah. What he does is he goes, hey, have you guys thought about this doctrine of the Messiah at all? Just like, let's read Genesis 3, just for a second. Interesting, right? You think there's anything else in the Bible that talks about this? Let's go forward. So he's laying the groundwork by walking through the scriptures and talking to them and setting things up. And at a certain point, he goes, I can't wait anymore. I think I have to just move to this next doctrinal point, even though we're still working on some things. I am compelled to do this. So he then tells them more truth. He tells them, yeah, so what we've been talking about uh, that's Jesus. So he's been reasoning with them, laying groundwork, showing that he understands the scriptures, going from more basic things. And then he gets to, and Christ is the Messiah, or Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, and you should accept him as the Messiah or Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, probably denying Jesus is the Christ, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. In mince words, he pronounced on them a curse and said, I am going to treat you as those who are outside of the church. So, this is one of those cases where the majority did not accept the biblical truth. And so Paul is separating from them and calling those who are in them to leave. He's saying, I'm clean of your filth. I, I don't have blood on my hands because I've warned you. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And there's that pattern from, to the, the Jew first and also the Gentile, which we also, by the way, see him talk about in the beginning of Romans. You remember that? And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Okay, so uh, this justice is a man who worships God, and he lives right next to the synagogue, and Paul goes in there. So here's what Paul did. Paul is in the church. He then tells the church some biblical truth. The church rejects that biblical truth. He gets to a point where he thinks he's gone through enough conflict resolution that he pronounces curse on them, and then he pulls out a shingle and opens up a church next door. 
He's next to the First Presbyterian Church. He opens up a church next door that calls it First Presbyterian Church. He goes, continuing. He's saying, we're the real ones. These guys are fake. Next door, right? The guts this guy has. And think about the guts of justice. He's got to live there. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. So Crispus is probably the moderator of the session of that synagogue. This thing happens, he leaves, Paul pronounces the curse, the church opens next door, he's you know, all mad trying to organize a membership retention plan, and, and you know, they, they've got the congregational meeting coming in, and they're trying to figure out how to deal with the whole thing, and something strikes him, and the Holy Spirit makes him believe, and he goes, they are First Presbyterian Church, we're fake now. We should repent. Let's get unity by repenting of this thing. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So all of a sudden, the leader transitions, and that makes it so there's a greater unity than there would have been, and the unity that's caused by that makes it so that other people listen to and believe the confession of faith that these people have. The unity of the church brings about a greater listening and believing. How many times do you talk to somebody about Christianity, and they're like, yeah, but who's right? I mean, there's like thousands of denominations. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul. Achaia, which gets mentioned also in Romans, is basically the province of Greece. Okay, so the... Um, Achaia would be the, the Roman province of Greece. Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, Okay, so the judgment seat is a secular judgment seat. So they've 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 brought him before the the justice of the peace, and the justice of the peace is listening to them, and they say, this guy is teaching idolatry. And the justice of the peace says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be judge of such matters. So he goes, I don't care. I don't care about the first table of the law. What even is that? And the not caring about that is used in the providence of God to prevent the persecution of the true church by a synagogue of Satan. Not that that's what they should do. It's sort of like when you read about um, Gamaliel saying, you know, we shouldn't do anything to argue against these people or to harass them. We should just leave them alone, and if it's God's work, it'll stand. If it's not God's work, it won't stand. That's not a good example. That's wrong. The church has a duty to pronounce judgment against false doctrine and false churches. And the civil magistrate should not just go, we don't care about the right worship of God in the land. These are not examples of what is righteous, but these are examples of God using the unrighteousness of authorities for the good of the righteous. So, Verse 16, and he drove them from the judgment seat. Motion dismissed, or motion denied, case dismissed, get out of here. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. This is a guy that seems to have replaced Crispus. So you don't have the session adopting the position. You have Crispus adopting the position, and then you have the session probably defrocking and ex-Passovering him then all the greeks took sosthenes the ruler of the synagogue and beat him before the judgment seat but gallio took no notice of these things gallio is not a particularly righteous judge this guy being assaulted in his courtroom and he goes you know i got a lunch got an appointment gonna head out you guys carry on try to kill him verse 18 so paul still remained a good while then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for syria 
and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. They're the ones who brought him into that community. They're the ones who gave him a base of operations before, what's his name? Is that, uh, Pastor Story, is that Justice? Justice, yeah, Justice. The guy next door to the synagogue who had the house, the guy put out the shingle, First Presbyterian Church, continuing, right? So, okay, so he, he, he moved into Justice's house after being at Priscilla and Aquila's and operated from there, but they gave him the starting point, and then they moved to that place, and that's where the church starts to meet. And all that time, he's maintaining fellowship with Priscilla and Aquila. So he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea. You remember Phoebe from the church at Sincrea. So they leave Corinth, they go to Sincrea. Sincrea is a port town, and when he's there at Sincrea, he's dealing with fulfilling a vow, a Nazarite vow, and cutting off his hair. For he'd taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. Okay, so he's traveling with them through that time. The time they're at Sincrea, the time they're at Sincrea, there's either already a church there and Phoebe's a part of it, or perhaps Phoebe is converted by their ministry, or perhaps she becomes a believer later. But Paul seems to know her. And so I would suggest that that's where the meeting with Phoebe occurs. So Priscilla and Aquila are part of that whole process. Would it be appropriate for Paul to just meet alone with Phoebe? So the household of Priscilla and Aquila provided appropriateness for opportunity of interaction and ministry to her. Jesus, when he sent out the disciples two by two, he told them to find a house, a godly house, and to use it as a base of operations as they went throughout the cities in Israel. And Paul continues that. It provides opportunity for hospitality. That base of operations. This is why churches start in houses. Now, what's the danger of churches remaining in houses? We'll talk about it as we move down. But they start that way. It's the easiest, most economical, most reasonable way to start. And it allows for that operation of the hospitality to occur as a place to start building community. Verse 19, he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed to Ephesus. Then he, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, or successively, strengthening all the disciples. So we have Priscilla and Aquila traveling with Paul until Ephesus, at least. Then, with the passing through of Sincrea, we've already talked about that. So Acts 24, or Acts 18, verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he had he was up to date in the history of redemption up to John's ministry. He's a believing Jew, and he has gotten all the stuff up to John's ministry. He's like, I'm on board. But he didn't know what had happened in Christ's ministry or what was going on in terms of the apostolic ministry. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So he's going in, and he's taking John's message to the synagogue. Reform, reform, reform. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And the better translation there is more fully. It's not that there's an accuracy problem. It's just that he didn't have all the bullets. He was shooting fine. Hit the target. But he didn't have all of the intellectual ammunition. And when he desired to cross to Achaia... 
the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So Aquila and Priscilla, they hear and they talk to Apollos. And what they do, not just Aquila, they took him aside and explained. The they applies to the explained. This is where women use the ministry of teaching. This is where doctrinal knowledge for women is used for teaching. It's in the context of hospitality and in private life, not filling pulpits. Women need to talk about doctrine. Women need to know doctrine. Women need to be able to teach doctrine. They need to be able to correct false doctrine. And what happens here, Aquila's, Aquila's engaging... And Priscilla is speaking in a manner as a second witness to support and to teach. There's gaps. Priscilla's able to pay attention to what's being said and go, uh, here's a piece that's useful, putting it in. Here's something that's going to make that more impactful and memorable, putting it in. Supporting the message, not taking off, not doing a totally different thing, not having totally separate objectives in the conversation, having the same objective of getting this guy up to date past John, to Jesus and the apostles. And then, functioning effectively together to communicate. They have to know the doctrine pretty well, both Aquila and Priscilla, to be able to intelligently work together. This is move and shoot. One engages, the other one's looking for the flanking opportunity, going for the kill. That right there, this maneuver and fire work, is one of the reasons why Two witnesses are better than one. And married couples are a ready-made fire team of truth. And so this ability to speak together, to engage, and to teach, to disciple in hospitality, this is where that happens. Which is why the book of Acts begins with the two types of breaking bread as being so important. There's the breaking bread together in the public worship. There's breaking bread together in hospitality. Those two types of bread breaking help us to see the two major places where fellowship and discipleship occur. Breaking bread in public doesn't last very long if breaking bread in private ceases. Which is why elders are required to be hospitable. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, to Greece... The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. So here there's the letter of reception, by the way. Remember that? Here's the letters of transfer. These things are in the Bible. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. That work right there, that work right there, was a huge blessing to the Gentile churches in Europe. Because the Jews were opposing them. And here is this eloquent Jewish man who is able to fight effectively. He's honored. He's skilled. And he's up to date. He has a full magazine. So returning to the main text, verse f- or page 5, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Do you see how those are major flashback points? They're my fellow workers in two senses. We made tents together. And we taught people together. The dominion and discipleship together to the glory of God. They risked their necks for my life in Corinth. And I give thanks to them. But so do all of the Gentile churches. Because Apollos 
who was famous, he was taught by them. And his fighting against unbelieving Jews in Greece is epic. Likewise, greet the churches in their house. You notice how that one's sort of a backhanded, not backhanded, it's a subtle compliment. Likewise, greet the churches in their house. They're still church planting. They're still church planting. There's a church in Rome. There's apparently so many congregations in Rome that there's the church in Rome broadly, and one of those congregations is the one that meets in Aquila and Priscilla's house. And guess what? Aquila and Priscilla are back in Rome. So that edict from Claudius is no longer in effect. So we have a sense of the time frame. They were booted out of Rome before. Now they're back in Rome. The edict is lifted. They have a church that meets in their physical house. That's the model for starting churches. You get to deeply embed the church into hospitality and to build community. Larger houses are very useful for hospitality and for holding meetings. The ancient household used to be far more extensive than is typically viewed today to be true. And one of the reasons, and we need to understand this, why do we think the household is small today? Is it because we just go, you know, the household is just the family in terms of blood. The household is just those people who are basically husband, wife, and children. Well, what we see is an effort to destroy that, right? You have the the homosexual movement, you have the transgender movement, you have all this stuff where people are trying to destroy the household, and they're trying to say the household is is a human construct. And so is marriage, right? False. The household was created by God. Marriage was created by God. It's a covenant institution. He defines it. He defines it. The magistrate has a duty to recognize that. Marriages are contracts, and they're not just contracts, they're covenants. If the magistrate doesn't uphold biblical marriage, then that contract, the most intimate contract, is not going to be enforced by the sword. Sure, let's make sure that you deliver a hundred pounds of barley for the whatever price we agreed to, but let's not care about upholding the marriage contract of the magistrate. This is the nonsense that sounds plausible to some people from the, the two kingdoms camp or sort of libertarian Christian perspective. I'm libertarian in the sense that unless God has given the authority to an institution, we don't assume it has it. We don't assume that the state can tell you to do anything We look for the authority from the word of God. We don't assume that one man gets to rule over another in any institution, except insofar as that authority has been delegated by God. That is liberty-minded. But libertarianism without the word of God is basically hell. It's anarchy. It's red in tooth and claw. It is an unrestrained wickedness in the land. There is no king. Libertarianism without Christianity is the pre-flood world. There's no legitimate authority for the state, so all there is is people going around enslaving each other. And there's no state to restrain wickedness. Somebody makes them state, makes themselves a state, whether they have authority or not. They're just bandits. They're brigands. The household has been undermined both from those who are afraid to protect it from the word of God and also by the overreaching of the state and the failure to protect against the state. The word of God is necessary to defend against the overreach of the state and the neglect of the state. And one of the things that we see is that health care, education, and welfare have been taken from the household and given to the state. Healthcare is not the realm of the state. Education is not the realm of the state. And welfare is not the realm of the state. The welfare giver of last resort is the church. The welfare giver normally is the household and the individual. You care you take responsibility for yourself 
and your household is supposed to take responsibility when there's a need to help, or other households, extended family. And when those things are not available, the church has mercy ministry. People say the reason the state has done that is because the church has failed. No, the reason the state has done that is because it wants to dominate the church and dominate households and extract power because that's what beasts do. America was known before the state grew to its largeness as the most charitable nation in the history of the world. The issue was not that the American church was so ungenerous. The American church built the hospital system. The American church made it so that this was a place where hunger basically didn't exist comparatively to history. And dominion work in a free society where people could keep the fruit of their labor made it so people had plenty to give. We think of the household as being very small. Even Christians think of the household as being very small because we have become accustomed to redistributive policies and the welfare state that make it so that it's very easy for people to not be a part of a household and to be their own. The other thing is, the other thing is, we have also received great blessing. We received great blessing in having increased tools of dominion through the growth of technology that increases productivity. So that we can still live economically better off than any persons in the history of the world while having our own separated households and paying enormous tax burdens. All of that together makes it very easy to have an atomized society. So when we think about a household, we're thinking about a larger institution. We talked about the idea of sort of the firm, the family firm. And this is an economic thing, and it's a relational thing. And that made it so that it was easier to expect that there would be a larger place where people could potentially meet for a house. And so leaving an assembly in a house in the long run is something that's dangerous. Here's why it's dangerous. It tends towards the household that has the meeting in their house dominating that assembly and becoming a de facto bishopric. In the very beginning, it's an immature state. This is the seed-leading form, and you're trying to get to having officers, but if you continue to meet in somebody's house for decades, it becomes that guy's, that guy's church. So, what you do is you start in a household meeting there, and you seek to see the church come to sufficient economic power to support officers some, help the poor of the congregation, and support a public place for meeting. And a public place for meeting helps to show that the church is a public institution, a jurisdiction that's separate from the household. You see how that helps to make the separation clearer? If you're not meeting in somebody's house, it's not their property. It's not an extension of their household authority. One error of the ancient church was to give hospitality budgets to bishops. You know, bishops are supposed to be hospitable. We're supposed to care for the poor. What if we just gave cash to the bishop? What if we just took the moderator of the session and gave him money to pay for his hospitality? This is normally kindly meant. Our own church has kindly offered to try to do something like that to me in the past. I rejected it for this reason, because there's a history to it. The history to it is this. When you mix the budget of the church with the hospitality, the tendency is towards bishops to view the church as their cash cow, and the hospitality as sort of an expense for supporting their position. And it's no longer generosity and hospitality. It's now mercy ministry. So hospitality is about not giving somebody else's money away. Generosity is not about giving somebody else's money away. Hospitality is about sharing your stuff. And if you mix the treasury of the church with the treasury of an individual household, you end up with simony a lot of the time. People buying church offices, bidding on it because of that. The way that there's some sort of attached 
revenue stream that you're buying. So the ancient church, and this is captured, I have a, a, a citation at the bottom from the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia. Um, the ancient church had one-fourth of its funds in some places go to offer maintenance of the ministry and the officers, uh, a hospitality budget to the bishop, uh, maintenance of the church building and the construction of church buildings, and a fourth to the poor. Even more anciently, the division was one-third, 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 keeping out the hospitality budget. So those are things that have occurred in history. It's important to be aware of. One of the places that uh, this gets cited, by the way, is the Veneral Beads Ecclesiastical History, in case you've heard of that. That's one of the things cited down there. So those are things that have happened. That's a, a danger, and those are kind of things associated with the idea of a church being in the house um, and the tendency towards the consolidation of power. The correct way to deal with this is laid out in 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. So you want to reduce the mercy ministry and put responsibility in houses. For this is acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, and these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, there's hospitality, if she has washed the saints' feet, there's service, if she has relieved the afflicted, there's mercy, if she has diligently followed every good work, careful application of the Word of God. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith, and besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Let the elders who rule well, and this is shifting in. You have an honor, you have money going to help real widows, and that's the money coming from the church directly to people who need help. It doesn't pass through an officer as their property that they then manage. It goes directly from the church to the person who needs help. So there's clarity about the source of it. Then also, as opposed to giving some sort of hospitality budget to elders, they're just being hospitable out of their own goods but let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. In the context here, the honor of the widow is money. And the elder receiving double honor is the idea of you're paying them well to be able to do that stuff. They're spending time serving. They get paid for that. They're not given a hospitality budget. So that's the better way to do it. That's how we're doing it. Especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Okay? Who rules well? The ones who are working hard in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. That applies to everybody, not just elders. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. Right? When elders are sinning, they need to be rebuked publicly if they're publicly sinning. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. Sit on that without prejudice. Doing nothing with partiality. Right, so both paying people for work and giving people mercy ministry. Apply the qualifications. Don't do it with prejudice. Don't do it with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but also a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. This is a positive command to drink alcohol. Some men's sins are clearly evident, perceiving, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. 
Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Right? When people are really good at hiding sins, guess what? They're going to come up. They're going to come up. We get through that. We end there. And we come back to that text in Romans. It says, Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Achaia is Greece. We just ended with Aquila and Priscilla, all that honorable stuff. They have a church in their house. All the Gentile churches give thanks to them. And oh, by the way, the church in Achaia, here's the first convert. That's the church that was helped by Apollos. Here's another subtle compliment to Priscilla and Aquila. This is a book that is priestly at the end. It builds relationship by encouraging, by greeting, by encouraging reception, by commending. I encourage you to do the same. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. Courtney? Um, there are several, just a quick question. Uh, I don't want to get into it, you know, long, but there are several instances in Scripture of um, the command to honor the king, um, obey the king, um, several places where it's just taken for, for granted. So you don't believe that a monarchy is, is biblical? I was saying in, in libertarianism that's anarchistic, there's no king, including no Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I was, that, was, that was what I meant when I said in, in libertarianism, there's no king. Okay? And so uh, Christ is king. Monarchy is not the order that was instituted by God when he established a government in Israel. He gave a republic. But monarchies are able to be legitimate governments, and there's a duty to submit to legitimate monarchical governments. And so the form of a government is not necessary to the essence of it, but there, is, there are better and worse forms. And obviously concentrated power tends towards tyranny because of the fallenness of man. And so, but monarchies do not, of their own essence, become illegitimate governments. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it to our souls. We ask that you would cause us to grow in the knowledge of you. We ask that you would help us to see the example of Priscilla and Aquila and their working together and to see rightly ordered households. Help us to see the expansiveness of the household and how it works and to use well the economic blessings that we have and to see that the institutions, the individual, the household, the church, and the state are in such disorder in our land and to strive to order them properly according to your word alone. And we ask that you would help us to know how to make beautiful homes, how to have households where we can deal with each other in our various stations well. And so, Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ.